welcome to this afternoon's Journal of Family Planning and Reproductive Healthcare podcast. And the podcast this afternoon is relating to a commentary in the journal um, entitled What Do We Do With All the False Positive CA125s? And it's a pleasure to introduce one of the authors of the commentary, Dr. Scott Wilkes, who's an honorary clinical senior lecturer at the Institute of Health and Society at Newcastle University. Scott, welcome this afternoon. Your article was very interesting and obviously pertains to a very important clinical problem, uh, ovarian cancer. What sort of symptoms should worry a, a GP which might be present as ovarian cancer? They're nicely listed in the uh, clinical guideline uh, CG122 uh, and they of course are abdominal distension, bloating, feeling full, early satiety, loss of appetite, pelvic abdominal pain, urinary frequency and urgency. The problem we've really got is the very poor positive predictor value of those symptoms. In terms of investigations, obviously the title slightly gives us away with measuring CA125, but are there other investigations that are recommended in the NICE guidelines and, and how would you advise GPs to proceed to investigate a patient presenting with non-specific symptoms? Yeah, well, well, taking the first point, uh, the, the clues in the title, CA125, um, that's uh, widely available to just about every GP in the land as a direct access investigation. But even just picking on that blood test on its own presents its own problems. So again, if we if we look at patients in the asymptomatic population, we know that it performs poorly. Although if we had, say, 200 women with a raised CA125 above the threshold of 35 international units per mil, then only something like four of them will have um, cancer. So, so the positive predictive value of that blood test itself is poor, and that's the problem, the number of patients with false positives. In response to your second question, what can GPs do? Well, there is a new opportunity here with, with the NICE guideline, and that is applying the RMI score, the Risk of Malignancy Index. This is a tool which has been around in excess of 10 years and used in secondary care to help secondary care gynaecologists refer on to specialist gynaecology services. It's a product of the um, ultrasound score, the menopausal status and the CA125 level, thereby in an attempt to further increase discriminatory power, uh, diagnostic power of ovarian cancer, but even, even that presented problems and limitations. It's also worth mentioning as well that ultrasound is available to most GPs throughout the UK, uh, but not every GP. And of course, it's transvaginal ultrasound scanning that we're particularly keen on when talking about the risk of of malignancy index score. But in applying the uh, RMI index, we will discover a significant cohort of women, symptomatic women, um, who have a raised CA125 and a normal ultrasound, probably something like 200 for every 10,000 women, something of that order. And of course, these women will not have ovarian cancer. Sure. But the problem we've then got is we then need to look for a potential other cause, of which there are quite a few. So anything that um, causes an inflammation of the mesothelial surfaces, for example, um, there are malignant causes which includes uterus, pancreas, stomach, colon. There are non-malignant causes like salpingitis, liver cirrhosis, pancreatitis, renal failure. So the question is, is what to do with that cohort? 
Now, again, if we look at CG122, the night guideline, it states quite clearly if there's no other clinical cause, um, advise her to return to her GP if her symptoms become more frequent or persistent. So it's a little bit woolly there. I think it would have been quite nice if we could have had an indication on when to repeat the test, uh, whether it be the CA125, whether it be the ultrasound, whether it be calculating the RMI score, because, of course, a rising CA125 will be more discriminatory and worrisome for a significant pathology compared to a, a falling or a static one. Just for people who are listening, am I right in saying from your article that if you have an RMI score of greater than 250, that, that's actually quite easy because that necessitates an urgent referral to a cancer centre and it's the, the group of patients with the RMIs that are less than 250 that you're talking about, is that correct? Yes, absolutely right. And as I say, they're the women who are going to have the, um, generally have the scores of under 35 for the CA125. It's going to be women who have a, um, a score of CA125 less than 35 and also premenopausal women who also bring the RMI score down as well. So clearly, as you've highlighted, there are going to be a number of women with positive CA125s and this, this is going to be a problem for general practitioners. I mean, have you any suggestions of what can be done to help GPs? Are you aware of any ongoing research to develop other biomarkers that can be used in the future? There is research into other biomarkers, such as the HE4 protein, and there's the UK TOC study, I believe, which is uh, looking at scanning and attitude report, I think, in 2015. So far, there's nothing really that seems to outperform RMI. The question, I think, for GPs is whether we should be adopting the RMI and using that data to help us refer should we employ a cancer-based approach or a symptoms-based approach in general practice? I believe it's the latter. I think the symptoms-based approach would be more fruitful for the GP. So I would quite like to draw the attention of our listeners to a paper published in the BJGP by um, Julia Hipsley cox which actually addresses the issue that I'm talking about, which is symptoms and risk factors to identify women with suspected cancer. So what this does it plugs into an algorithm a whole host of uh, demographic baseline factors such as age, body mass index, smoking, status, alcohol use, etc. And then on top of that, symptoms, some of which are red flag symptoms such as uh, hemoptysis, hematuria, abdominal distension, abdominal pain, and, and, and recent general symptoms such as back pain, cough, um, itching, um, anemia, and, and so it goes on, nausea. And then what, what, out of this algorithm, comes a, a risk profile for that person. So, for example, a 68-year-old female who's a non-drinker, non-smoker with anemia and abdominal distension, abdominal pain with uh, recurrent constipation will have an overall cancer risk of 37.8%. And that's comprised of, from the symptoms I'm describing, you'll not be surprised, 25.8% uh, ovarian 5.6% uh, colorectal, and then it, it drops down to um, hematological malignancies of 0.8% through gastroesophageal pancreas, 0.1%, lung 0.1%. And that is something which I could see quite easily being embedded into the electronic patient record, which we currently use now. So, for example, we, we do use 
cardiovascular risk scores, which help us in, our, in determining whether we should be prescribing antiplatelet drugs and statins and give a 10-year cardiovascular risk. Well, this can quite easily uh, appear as a drop on the drop-down menu and help focus the GP on further investigations based on that cancer risk. So it's a slightly different way of thinking about yeah. um, ovarian cancer because it's, it's a symptoms-based approach. That brings me to my next point, which you again highlight in your commentary, which relates to another article published in the journal, uh, an article by Lewital, which if we are using symptoms, we have to make sure that patients are well informed about what symptoms they need to present to their GPs, you know, what symptoms are, are worrying. And, and this study suggests that awareness of ovarian cancer symptoms in the UK is low. Can you comment on that in light of your, your proposal? The low paper is based upon um, symptoms that are recalled and recognised where they presented an open question to the patients, asking them, name as many symptoms as you think you, uh, that may be related to ovarian cancer, and they performed extremely poorly. But when presented with the symptoms associated with ovarian cancer, they did quite well, and that, that's called recognition. So the concern there is as if a, a patient is at home with a symptom, is whether they can attribute that to a significant diagnosis. And I think that's a big concern. Now that, of course, leads itself on to an education awareness campaign, which I think would be very sensible. The next question then is, what should this intervention look like? And if we then rolled out some sort of an intervention and evaluated it, I think that would be entirely um, uh, appropriate. And it would give us an opportunity to see exactly what the impact of implementing uh, NICE clinical guideline 122 would be. Great. Well, well, thank you very much, um, Scott, for your time today. I mean, clearly you've highlighted what's going to be an ongoing important problem, but also thank you for your thoughts about how we can manage that problem. Thank you, Andrew. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.